So what music were you into when you were in the, say, 1980s, early 90s, you know, young man, pre, just pre-college? I had a real metal phase. I was very much into ACDC and Dokken. Metal? I was very metal. I would not have pictured you as metal. I wouldn't say I was heavy metal. I didn't look heavy metal, but I definitely no, course, enjoyed yeah. the hard rock. I, I was learning to play electric guitar and had a distortion pedal, the rat pedal. I didn't know that. Yeah. There was a time yeah. where that was... Do you still play? Do you still know how to play? I still play. Uh, I'm actually in kind of a folk bluegrass band, so I play the acoustic. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, you know, you know what's weird? That actually makes total sense. I mean, if you <laughs> were to say in Thank the you. 80s, well, when I get a little older, I'm going to be totally like rocking the bluegrass. Right. You know, they would have killed you. But no, I'm with you. Were You You were small town growing up, right? I was small Relatively? town. Yeah. Relatively. Yeah. You were probably like me then, which is, I was into rock and heavy metal. My years were the late 80s, early 90s. So this was Metallica, Black Album. This is Guns N' Roses time. ACDC is still, of course, there. Aerosmith is just kind of moving to its pop phase. But the people around me, my classmates, there were some so-called metalheads and these things, but it wasn't like, I had long hair, but I, I never like, I never went the full deal. Like I didn't mm-hmm. have leather jackets. Exactly. And like, I wasn't going to go metal style. I just thought the music was compelling. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I was into the wanted distortion. It's funny looking back that the look back then was leather pants, big hair with hairspray. I'm talking about the musicians and the bands and makeup. What we would consider to be kind of cross-dressing, sort of effeminate now, but that was considered very masculine to look. Well, yeah, it was done. It's funny, the the trends, because it was done to, uh, they always talk about affluence, you know, what can you do and what can't you do? What what shocks versus what's normal? And I thought that was crazy, by the way, because I really only became really aware of music after everyone stopped doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you look at Motley Crue, they went from being those guys to suddenly they weren't those guys. So they were still wearing leather and stuff and like trying to be metal, but they stopped poofing up their hair and feather bangs and things. But someone pointed out to me, I thought, yeah, that was so weird. They said, well, look at boy bands in the 90s. Most of them are chosen for a very soft, rounded face, very much doing the same thing, but just with different style. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And someone pointed out that large fan base, the people that will be zealous will be middle school, around that age girls. They'll be the ones that in particular will buy the albums. And if the girls are into it, the guys will right. suddenly be into it for obvious reasons. And there's some weird thing there where, if, yeah, if you make them sort of, I mean, let's be honest, Metallica Black album, like headbanging, this kind of stuff, not going to appeal to a lot of middle school girls, No, was the comment. If you soften the image and yet make it rock metal, then it has a crossover appeal to it. You know what I was watching back in, I guess, late high school, early college was Beavis and Butthead. And that was one of the first shows where they uh, were into uh, metal. Yeah, I know. Uh, the old Beavis uh, and Butthead. Uh, Mike Judge, hilarious Texas guy, went on to do King of the Hill and Office Space and Clerks and Idiocracy. Uh, so some great classic, movies, by the way. classic movies and really great humorist. But uh, Beavis and Butthead was his big creation. And Beavis and Butthead, remember, liked metal and they liked rap. And that was the first time I saw that combination. I don't think rap was big at my high school. Or if it no, was, it was still, it it was still, still ostracized, yeah. yeah. Early to middle 80s, I mean, it was on the fringe, which is strange because now it's the dominant music force of the world. You know, most people will try to incorporate at least some of its themes, some of its beats. Coming out of the 70s, it was funk. 
Mm-hmm. And funk was very polished and had a very specific style to it. And rap and hip hop was coming out of a much more earthy, you know, places like Queens, New York, and obviously out in California. It was coming from a much different place. Mm-hmm. And even from the funk crowd, it was not embraced because it was seen as too raw, too strange, that the beats weren't quite the same as funk. And no, it was ostracized. That article, actually, that we were both looking at mentioned that, that BET featured rap after MTV. And yeah, Ebony right. was showing rap after Rolling Stone did it. So it really, it, it yeah. was not accepted by the Lionel Richie African-American stations. UMTV Raps was iconic for that reason. It, it brought it to the fore and it, it didn't just feature the music and the videos, which were obviously huge, but it interviewed them. You know, they came in and they talked. And so suddenly people start to catch on and then it becomes the wave that it is now. Yeah, and it, it is everywhere. Uh, even Sesame Street and kids shows, they do kind of a hip hop. Yeah. They've got Elmo kind of beatboxing. They do. They really do. So it, yeah. it, it really has become ubiquitous. Well, and I always say Sesame Street, you know, people always get mad about what will the kids watch? You know, what are they trying to tell the kids? I'm of the theory that it's not about the kids. Sesame Street is a barometer as to what age the parents are right. and what they were into when they were younger, if that makes sense. So I've noticed their inside jokes when I had very young kids who loved Sesame Street. The jokes, the actors, all these things are all pitched to my yes. age audience. Yes. I mean, they had, they had like Vanilla Ice on there one time. And I'm like, my kids will never care or know who Vanilla Ice is if they're not blessed as I am. <laughs> but <laughs> but obviously it's, it's an insider thing because that's our age range. Right. And so many kids' things are pitched to both kids and adults, like Pixar movies and various things yeah. are appealing to, uh, you know, because the parents are watching it with the kids and, and you want something that works on both levels. Some things really aren't pitched to both levels, like Teletubbies is just insane. No. Unless you're a no, child. That's just, it's just yeah, crazy. If the parent tries to watch that, their brain might melt. Yeah, it's awful. But Sesame Street is, no, it's definitely fun to watch as an adult. They had the guy from uh, Big Bang Theory on there. They have stars and they don't announce them exactly. They'll just show up no. and they'll yeah. talk to Elmo and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so-and-so. And they had some <laughs> hilarious skits. I remember they had one called True Mud and it was teasing on True Blood. It was basically really? a parody of True Blood <laughs> and it had the whole opening scene to the True Blood series where they're at the bar and the vampire is there, but instead it's all about True Mud because I think it had cows in it and it was really funny. It was really great. <laughs> it was almost like a Saturday Night Live skit. For That's you know, perfect. Actually, that yeah. is what Sesame Street is and, and it's Saturday Night Live for kids and, and kids are going to love it just with the cute characters and what they do. So. Yeah. Then they can uh, make the plot line adult, in a sense, humor, and, and they're golden. Well, one of the things for me with my, you know, again, this is pre-iTunes. This is pre-Nap, uh, was it was it, was it Napster? Yeah, yeah Napster you, was yeah. the first Napster, one okay. for the file sharing. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Got everybody in trouble. Yeah, everybody. everybody <laughs> I abused that thing because <laughs> yeah. it, it hadn't quite become a moral issue. No one really thought of it. It was just, oh, you can download this is just sharing. Yeah, right. But anyway. It's sharing that I'm going to keep for a long time. Can you imagine what kind of music we would have been exposed to in the late 80s and 90s for that reason? Mm-hmm. If you think about it, it was really a, almost a stranglehold. Like what was popular, you found because it was popular. There were also things that we weren't aware of. So in my world, I was not aware of hip hop or rap from the late 80s, early 90s. And so what I've done actually a lot more recently is I've gone back to some of those decades and I've been re-listening and, and rediscovering music that I didn't listen to back then. 
So Iron Maiden is actually one of the ones that I've actually found interesting and compelling. Nice. Because, I mean, everyone loves to think, oh, Iron Maiden, you know. And I have that in me as well. But what hooked me was they have one song, one of their famous ones, that actually opens with one of G.K. Chesterton's poems. And it's amazing because it's, it's a poem to God where he's saying, take not thy thunder from me, take not thy thunder from us, rather it is. And it's a beautiful song, but it's one of those things where you're like, these guys are more literate, more thoughtful than I thought they would have mm-hmm. been. I thought this was just, you know, crazy shock rock. And one of the ones that just, which is what this article we were both reading brought up was the run DMC Aerosmith thing, mm-hmm. the rap rock melding, which was just so crazy when it came out. I had no, no category for it. It didn't make any sense to me. I liked it, though, I will say. The, the song was, was great. Amazingly catchy. It's hard. Yeah. Everybody likes it. What was funny is for a long, long time, until I was older, actually not that long ago, I thought the song was a Run DMC song that Aerosmith happened to play on. Funny. <laughs> Turns out it's an Aerosmith song that Run DMC rapped on. It, just all kinds of interesting things like that. The, I guess the historian in me likes to go back and figure out a culture or a genre from my childhood. By the way, there's a show out like this. Have you have you watched the Goldbergs? I no, I haven't. Well, I've I've seen the ads. I've not watched it. I've caught like snippets of shows. One, it seems to be pretty hilarious. I can't vouch for it fully, but it is it is exactly this world. It's the kid with the GI Joes, and you know, hip hop is on the rise, and one of the kids starts wearing gold chains, all that kind of stuff. It sounds like it's our childhood. Well, being made fun that of. that show struck me as as a '80s version of of. That 70s show. Yes. It's sort of hearkening back. Yeah, and it, but its comedy is, I think, a little bit different. It's a little more zany okay. um, at, at places. It's got kind of the voiceover thing. Like there's a guy from now talking about the past to kind of give reference and scope to it. Whereas that 70s show was just happened to be set in the 70s more often than not. Well, back to Walk This Way. Great song, very catchy. I did not know all the history behind it. I didn't realize it was such a seminal track in terms of bringing hip-hop rap to the forefront. And I didn't realize yeah. it was so you know, groundbreaking in terms of, of making that acceptable to rock audiences and white audiences. So that was really interesting. I remember it. I remember it being on MTV. And I remember disliking the video because it felt so preachy. Because it really yeah. was sort of them coming together. And it, Run DMC had that weird thing where they'd wear an Adidas shoes without shoelaces, which yes. just looked ridiculous. Because the minute you really walked, your shoes would come off. Like right. tennis shoes, <laughs> if you try it, it I don't know There's how no they running lift. in those things. No, so. you really can't lift your foot without your foot coming out. So how they even managed it, I don't know. But it just felt like they were trying really hard. Like, we're going to do a crossover. And the video actually is pretty preachy, as, as that article even says. What's his name? Tyler Perry? No, Tyler Perry is the guy that has all the TV shows. Yeah, and then uh, there's Steve, Stephen Perry. Stephen Perry. But then who's the guy in Journey? Wait. That's Perry something. <laughs> Let's cut this out. <laughs> it's Stephen Tyler. Steven no, Tyler. we're leaving this in. Who's Perry this Como? Is the problem. <laughs> so Perry Como is singing in Aerosmith. Right. And uh, yeah, he takes the microphone stand and breaks down the wall, literally between the two recordings which is crazy because the song is about sex it, the original point of it was like the sexual thing right i think so and that's what most all rock and rap songs are about it's about human sexuality and desire and teenage and all that so so it's already i don't know naturally you, connected. you shook me all night long was i think about the lisbon earthquake <laughs> back in the 19th century Oh, they're such bright historians. Uh, I did not realize till this article, and we'll, I'll put this up on our Facebook page and I'll, I'll tweet it from our uh, Theology Cast 
Twitter account. I didn't realize that was Rick Rubin. And what I know him for mm. is really revitalizing Johnny Cash's career, that Johnny Cash had largely been disowned by country music because country music had become so pop-oriented. He released some songs that they just totally ignored. And Rick Rubin huh. championed him, and that's the American recordings that he did at the end of his life, five, oh, yeah. five yeah. albums. And so to me, Rick Rubin is... He resurrected a career that should never have been forgotten. I mean, Johnny Cash is one of the great cultural icons of the 20th yeah. century from America. And But you look at his Wikipedia page, he's worked with the Dixie Chicks, Black Sabbath, wow. Slipknot. Uh, he was working in heavy metal and in rap and hip hop, worked with uh, Russell Simmons, co-founded Def Jam Records. And he was 22 when he cut Walk This Way. So he was barely out of college. It's so, amazing. Yeah, just quite a, quite a guy. He's worked with Eminem. Uh, ZZ Top, Lady Gaga. So he is really one of the great producers. (laughs) Now that is a catchy song too. No, that is a great song. That's a great album. Yeah, I don't, her music's not my style, but first time you hear that, you're like, wow, I could, that's an interesting song. Yeah. And it it gets, it's so catchy. Yeah. That's when you know someone has a real, has a real talent, whether it's the artist or someone who wrote it for them is when you despise the genre, it's totally not your wavelength. You're not even in the mood for that type of song, whatever it might be. And yet you hear it and you're like, I'll leave that on for a little while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it just keeps going. You know, Slipknot totally is that way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. Yeah, because the, the thing about the Run DMC Aerosmith thing was the melding of stuff, right? So genres that in some ways were similar. They're very much marginalized. At least parents don't like either. Let's put it that way. Are now coming together. And if you just fast forward a generation of music... Suddenly, that's exactly what you have. You have, not all these are the best brands of music, but in the 90s, mid-90s, early 2000s, you have this rap rock thing that comes out. It becomes a a genre unto itself. It's interesting that that in some ways music is always doing this, but in some ways the modern world from the 80s on, and it's true across all types of spectrums, but things just kind of blend. There's a melting pot globalization thing that happens in music, it happens in church life. You were talking about the globalization of theology, where now we're aware of Korean Christians and their interests and thoughts mm-hmm. and reflections, African Christians. I mean, we could have known none of these things 150 years ago, whereas now we're, we're very much at least aware. We're not, we may not be as up on these things as we could have been. So there's, a, there's this weird blending of things. And one of the interesting sort of analogies to that, what I teach, is that this is actually what happens in the transition from Europe to America with the churches. So you have old world, new world tension. You can look at it in all kinds of things, but one of the things that that's very important to see this in is sacraments. I mean, sacraments are enormously important, right? They're, they're the things that divide folks. So Luther and the Reformed traditions, a lot of people always wonder, why didn't they get together? Why were they separated? Well, they seem to agree on so much. Well, the, the reason they didn't come together was in 1531, the Colloquy of Marburg. Zwingli and Luther in the same room, all these other guys, and they can't agree on the sacraments, so they decide to not join up as one church. And it's very interesting. I mean, people for centuries had these very distinct ideas of the sacraments. But you come to the New World, all these things blend together, and mm-hmm. suddenly the American broadly conceived church, however you want to talk about it denominationally, its understanding of the sacraments is in some ways very, very different because of that, as I like to say, there's a melting pot not just of ethnicities and languages, 
but of denominational trends in, a, in the American context where things come together in a way that they never would have in the old world. Yeah, America really is a new Eden, as the God in America PBS series, their first or second episode is titled that. It's a kind of a Garden of Eden, and it's a reboot in a sense that, that they can take those traditions and, and plant them in new soil and, mm. and see what happens. And those, some of those old arguments don't matter as much. Is That's that right. what you're saying? Yeah, in America, there's yeah. there's concerns of survival and and conquering the land and uh, forming a more perfect union. There's all these issues mm-hmm. in America that uh, makes the old battles not seem as important. And another thing I try to get students to understand is America is wide open in a way that Europe isn't. That in Europe, the bishop could call in the soldiers. And, you know, there are all sorts of systems of control. But in America, if you want to just go off and start your own religion, all you got to do is is cut down some trees, you know. You, you, yeah, yeah. And, and if they kick you out of Maryland, then you just go west to outside Maryland and you do your own thing. That's right. I mean, that's why Pennsylvania is what it is. Pennsylvania is the place, and I don't mean this rudely, it's the place for the goofballs. <laughs> As conceived by the Europeans. Uh-huh. No one in Europe, like the Quakers the Amish, the Mennonites, all these brethren Anabaptist groups. And William Penn, who the state's named after, the king owed him a lot of money, so he said, give me that land. And he said, I'll, I'll let all these groups that you're marginalizing or in some cases persecuting to come and have free space. Which, you know, anyone who's been to Pennsylvania or lived there, it's definitely part of its ethos to this day. You know, mm-hmm. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, it's got, it, it, it was birthed by that, that movement. You know, other places, Rhode Island, Poor Roger Williams lands in the in the area of the Puritans, and he has different views. And they say, "Get out!" and he goes to Rhode just, Island. Just moves on. Yeah, yeah, these old arguments don't matter as much about uh, the real presence in communion and and those sorts of um, you know, how is Christ present in the bread and the wine. I mean, that really is the ultimate argument. I think with the sacraments is okay. Everyone agrees that somehow Christ is present because a sacrament is an outward sign of an invisible grace. But what does that mm-hmm. mean? Does that mean he's spiritually present? Does that mean he's present as a memorial to his life and death? You know, how is Christ present to me? And of course, Catholics have a particular take on that. Or in some ways, is Christ present in his absence, which is the Zwinglian model of Jesus yeah. is at the yeah. right hand of God in the book of Acts. And so that's where he still is. And so he can't be right. in the bread because he's He's in a lazy boy kicking back. Yeah, or He's yeah, done. yeah, that's right. <laughs> or as yeah, as Vingley said, his body didn't go away. He still got scars, and it's funny teaching through a lot of this in the Reformation context because you're right. America has this, uh, and it's at least in its early days, and I think it's still part of us. It has the weirdest mixture of pretty aggressive idealism. I mean, just think of the at least from a religious standpoint, the first Thanksgiving, this idea of the huddled mass that has gone for the freedom of their expression of faith. And now they can finally do it. There is this pretty aggressive idealism, but it's also radically pragmatic. Mm -hmm. It's radically pragmatic in the sense that you have to negotiate. You have neighbors from different denominations. I always tease, you know, if if you went to church in Scotland, you didn't call it the the Presbyterian church. You just called it the church. Right. There there weren't other options around you. If you were in Germany, you were going to be probably Lutheran, depending on the city. But you come to the New World, and our experience is you have a Baptist church next to a Methodist church, next to a Presbyterian church, next to a Catholic church. And 
The other thing is, is none of them are state-run, state-funded, so you always have to negotiate. Who am I? How am I different from this person? And you also then have to round off some of the edges. So something very unique that began to arise in the American context with sacraments is a pastor would begin over the years to stand up and say, look, you may not be a part of our denomination, but as long as you're a baptized Christian, you're welcome at this table. You can't, you can't envision that pragmatism happening in most of the centuries prior to this time. Who baptized you? What, what confession are you part of? Are you Nicaea or not? You know, early church stuff. You're not going to see a medieval priest saying, well, you know, hey, come one, come all. Right. You know, it's just not, it's not that way. Interesting. In the American context, it, it definitely drives that way. I always think of the Episcopal Anglican Church taking that approach of, of uh, you know, as long as you're a baptized Christian, you're welcome to this table. Lately, but not originally. But that's no, not original. No. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. That, that is very much, I guess, an American church gift. Yeah. Again, yeah, and it is, it's one of our, I would say, it's our chief theological export, <laughs> the sense of <laughs> you have to figure out how to get along. But, I mean, there's a scene in the Anglican world when Mary Tudor comes to the throne, she starts killing a bunch of Protestants. They all scatter, of course, to the continent. A number of them land in a Lutheran area, and they're greeted at the dock, and they're asked if they can affirm the physical presence of Christ in the Eucharist, just as the Lutheran confession says. And they said, no. And they said, all right, get back on the boat. <laughs> wow. Go on, go on. And that's why so many of them land in reformed controlled areas down in the Swiss regions in France, et cetera. But I mean, yeah, these were dividing lines. These were, do you agree with me or not, back in the day? But you, you would shudder to see that type of a experience here in the American context more often than not. And part of this is the enormous diversity of America from the beginning, and, and I try to stress yeah. this with students, that we've always been diverse. We, we've had there Jews in New York from the 1600s, and there's mm -hmm. Catholics coming in, and there's small numbers, but we, you can't say we've been 100% Protestant or 100% Christian no. as a nation. And so that kind of led to a pragmatism that once these di diverse states of, of Quakers and Anglicans and Puritans and all these others once they're, they realize, well, we share a continent, now we share a country, they're going to have to kind of back off. You can't build a, a city of diverse, a city that's generally made up of diverse religions. You can't build it unless you look past the differences. Yeah. And say like, well, you know, we're all, and of course, evangelicalism and revivalism and pietism will help that too, will help soften those edges. As long, no, that's right. As long as you've yeah. had that experience, then that, that's really all that matters. Do Methodists essentially take the Anglican approach to sacraments, which is, you know, not spending an eternity trying to define what it is, but a high view of it? Would that be uh, the Methodist approach? Uh, They're not Zwinglian, right? Well, it's interesting. Um, Methodist approach to sacraments is kind of a big hot mess. I, I, this is my analysis, because there's so many influences on American Methodism. So okay. technically, it would be the more Anglican approach, but because of revivalism and other approaches that impacted mm. Methodism, there's plenty of Methodists in the pews that are Zwinglian that think of the sacraments as really being a symbol and a representation of your commitment. And it's almost yeah. like taking a pledge. It's a memorial. So those are classic approaches of Zwingli to the Lord's Supper. And so yeah. some Methodists are that way, and some Methodists are really, really close to the Episcopal service. We've got a hymnal and book of worship and, we're, and with great thanksgivings and all laid out, but, mm. but Methodists are interestingly free to not use it. It's not binding. Okay. So it's very diverse. And I always say a lot of that stuff with the Zwinglian, it's even hyper-Zwinglian. 
hmm. on a certain level because Zwingli would memorialize it, but he still thinks it's a almost necessary part of the weekly service or at least monthly. Whereas for most folks, they would have a Zwinglian sort of base. And the application, though, is they treat it as no different than the children's message, you know, take it or leave it, VBS, you know, in the summers. It's just one of the things we kind of do. It's nice. It's not, it actually is desacramentized, if that's a word. Whereas Zwingli had just had a principled ontology, really, about it. He, did, he didn't want to say anything's physical. And he really pushes that way. But yeah, I tend to say most people in the American context default to something either Zwinglian or even Neo or hyper Zwinglian on the sacraments because that's it's just yeah, we it's something we do. It's just, it's a it's a it's a ritual. It's kind of a top up. It's a spiritual top up. Yeah. It's like, well you can you do go. it, but yeah. you know. And you should, but yeah, it's not seen as really necessary to your Christian faith. Whereas I think the reformers were much more the church is based on word and sacrament. Yeah, which, and I use that, I say, okay, word and sacrament. So those same people who might not care all that much about the sacraments would care about the sermon. Right. I mean, let's say the sermon was awful, Let's or let's say the guy gets up and does a five-minute, hey, look, you know, you guys all have Jesus in your heart, we're right. good, you know. Did you see that thing in the paper yesterday? Yeah, woo, woo. I'm going to go watch some golf. Yeah, if, if, if that happens, they would lose their mind. Yeah. Whereas there are lots of analogies in the Reformation to... As you take preaching seriously, take the sacraments seriously, you, know, you have to be overly anal about things, but, but the, in the sense that they're both seen as the same purpose. And the analogy I use is I say, look, we've all sat through a hard sermon where the, the preacher wasn't the best. You might have criticized the, the style, but you don't walk out going, I'm not sure if I like sermons anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or even the glass half full folks, like my wife, she'll say, no, I, I just tried to hear one thing in there that I could take away. She was always trying to find something that she could grab onto, even if it wasn't the best. I would say there's an analogy to the sacraments in the Reformers, where they'll say, look, we're going to argue over the minutia, but the point is you still take it seriously and you think it's a privilege. It's, it's a great part of the church service, not just the thing that keeps you a little bit longer from lunch, you know, each yeah. when, you, when you have it. Yeah, my home church, actually, when we had communion quarterly, and this is a Methodist church, attendance was down. People were kind of like, well, it's it's a lot of trouble. And they would kind of yeah. skip church on those days. And they got to where they wouldn't announce it so that people... Got to watch those Panthers. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, don't want to do, don't want to mess with all that. So um, it, it just seems like a lot of trouble off to walk all the way down there, I, I think was part of the attitude. And, and part of it too is churches have at times made it more difficult than it should be. If you're at an Episcopal Lutheran or Catholic service, it, it doesn't take a long time, the communion. You know, it's like no. 15 minutes, maybe <laughs> even 10. If it's a, They've got a lot of practice. They've got a lot yeah. of practice, and it's very efficient. And I know in, in some Methodist churches, they do a bit where you go and pray at the altar, and they serve everyone mm -hmm. in groups, and that will take forever. Yeah, in some ways, the, the lack of frequency of it means that we want to make it a little extra, right? We want to yeah. make it extra. And then that makes you think like, well, we don't want to do that because it makes the service too long. And so you're kind of caught in a cycle of, of well, you know, we don't have to do this or let's not do this now. We'll, we'll wait next time. Methodist Church actually has a teaching document adopted by General Conference, which is the main body of the church, the international body of the church that meets every four years and is meeting right now actually in Portland. And uh, some years back, they adopted a, a teaching document about communion saying that Methodist churches should practice it every week. But 
Mm. The number of churches that actually do that in America probably are in the dozens, maybe. Wow. So that's, again, this, the odd bit of the Methodist church. Uh, it's interesting, though, because there was a church in Orlando when I lived there, St. Luke's, and it's kind of a marvel for the Orlando, Florida culture, because it's it looks... But it has flying buttresses. It looks like it's straight out of Paris in the Middle Ages. Wow. And as a result, of course, in an Anglican ethos, there's going to be people that trend more Anglo-Catholic. And on not a few occasions, the dean of the cathedral has to get up and remind people that you can't skip the sermon and then just come in for the Eucharist. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That they're actually doing the opposite, where they think the word is itself not the most important thing, and they just have to come for the sacrament. And that's just taking the same problem and flipping it. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's word and sacrament. It's it's both. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, this should be seen as at least analogous things that you take both seriously. You know, it's they're still in frail hands. It's still the pastor. You know, the sermon can't, may not be the best ever. They might overly elaborate or do too much during this sacrament piece. But but this this pragmatism of ah, I'll just skip it. Mm-hmm. It is kind of an Achilles to this American thing. Where if, if it doesn't meet me where I am, there's no accommodating to the need of the church. It's, well, I don't like it, I'm not going. Right, you know, right. Kind of thing. And, and I bring this up with students. It's one of the dark sides of revivalism is if all you need is Jesus in your heart, then it leads you down a path of, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to even be a moral person. All I need is Jesus in my heart. So once you start down the path of, of like you said, of, well, I don't really need this or it's not helping me, then you're, you really start abandoning important teachings of the church. Yeah. The analogy I use for that is in a lot of Bibles, you know, they have, you give first Bibles to children and so things, and even leather-bound ones that are just text for adults. And a lot of them, you flip to the front, there'll be something that'll say, when was I baptized? Or when did I give my life to Christ? And you'll write in the date, mm-hmm. which is a fine practice. You know, we should set up markers of our memories of our life. But I always found it funny because... My date matters. That's the beginning. And then, but there's no sense of, you got a life in front of you. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it becomes the punctilier, to, to your point, the revival thing means, well, I just had Jesus in my heart that one time. I'm good. There's no actual life that you live out that's mm-hmm. different. An ongoing thing. Do you know the Ralph Wood anecdote about Karl Bart when Bart was asked when he was saved? No. Bart was asked that question, Dr. Bart, when were you saved? And he said, I was saved in AD 33 on Golgotha. So that was his little (laughs) trick about, you know, it's more about Jesus than about the day of my salvation. Don't don't make this slider marker. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Don't make it about my feelings. But what's interesting is the sacraments are still really important to people. I find a lot of people take a lot of comfort and strengthen them. I know I do. And another mentor, Charles Talbert, and I may have said this before, he commented that when you are studying religion intellectually, the sacraments will mean more to you because it's something you can't deconstruct, basically. Sure. And I've really found that to be true, that I'll sit there and I can think about the sermon and critique it, and I can even critique that, oh, well, the scripture reading was from the message, and that irritates me. And all these things can irritate me about the service. But if the sacraments are duly administered, in in the words of the Presbyterians, if they're done rightly, I take that as meaning that they're done with respect and, mm-hmm. and they include the traditional words around that, which can vary, but you're hearing the Trinity, you're hearing various bits yeah. and memorial. If you do all that, then pretty much it works. Like it's kind of idiot proof. 
That's all you've got to do. Just don't drop the chalice, say the <laughs> Trinity, and, and don't rush yeah. it. Because sometimes you'll see people rush it like, oh, well, it's 1155, so I'm going to read this really quickly. That dry, you know. Oh, that is betrayed, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And it's so betrayed, right. And, mm. and so that's, it's, it's not an auctioneer, but uh, yeah, it always works. <laughs> and, and uh, that's... Oh, one dollar, one dollar. <laughs> Father Christ, very for you. <laughs> my wife, my younger brother, and I had this one time in, around Christmas. We were in a different city, and the church that was having a Christmas Eve service was an Anglican church. And we went to it, and uh, <laughs> the sermon, as I get older, I'm really not all that critical of sermons. I mean, I'll be, I'll have a critique, but I won't be critical. I'll try not to have that spirit right, to it. Right. And this was, though, one of the worst I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> not in the sense that he was just doing his best, that kind of thing. Like, he was pointing out, again, Christmas, that there's a wealthy family in the church, or, or probably in Bethlehem, that is letting... Mary and Joseph in. He has this whole hermeneutic as to how they're wealthy. And then he points out the wealthiest family in the church and starts to thank them for how great they are for giving money to the church. Oh, <laughs> like, gosh. And you're just going, oh, this just became a sales pitch. Like the whole, like it, it derailed from there. It got worse. Was it Stewardship Sunday? <laughs> no, it was Christmas Eve for crying oh out loud. Oh, my gosh. If there's any time not to talk about you, you know, and we're just sitting there going like, oh, my goodness. And then he just went straight Boltmon. You know, I just like to think that he's he's risen in my heart and that therefore I can be thankful for this wealthy family, <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff. But then it went into the sacraments. The whole service was night and day. Suddenly, you know, he was saying the words of institution. Suddenly we were going, okay, like we, it recovered, in other words. Mm-hmm. And on the way out, my brother said, well, thank the Lord for sacraments. Because <laughs> we didn't have the word part very well there. There's some truth in what he said there. Yeah, that is. That's good. Uh, it reminds me of a story of some friends here in, in Albemarle. They are Catholic. And there was one Sunday, the, the, the one Catholic church in town, the priest there, he got up there for a sermon and said, well, I got the lectionary wrong, so I prepared for the wrong set of readings, so we're just going to skip it. And then all the Catholics are like, yeah, because <laughs> they just go into the sacrament and go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know, it shows how different Catholicism is, but it's also kind of a winner. It's like, oh, it's yeah. kind of sweet, actually. It's like, well, we read the Bible and we'll just move on. Try that in a Baptist world to see what yeah. happens or Presbyterian yeah. or Congregational. Whereas if you said the opposite, hey, you guys, you know what? We're going to do Lord's Supper this week, but running low on time, so we're just going to cut it and go straight to the final hymn. You, you would see the same, like, yeah, yeah right, right. bring on Bennigan's. <laughs> TGI Fridays, here I come. Panthers game is on. And Methodists struggle a bit with the whole question of rebaptism. I say struggle. It's, it's not kosher. You're not supposed to do it, but so many yeah. people want it. And, and it's, really? yeah, it's a uh, churches. Well, I shouldn't say want it, but I know of churches that have done it because once you make that connection of baptism reflects a deep spiritual change in my life, someone really wants to go through baptism and they say, well, yeah. as, a, as a baby, it didn't mean anything. And now it would mean something. And, and I know of Methodist churches that have broken the official teachings to do that. Yeah. That, that's, that's a big one for me because I, I, I mean, if there's anything, I'm just like, look, don't do that. I mean, from the beginning, I mean, it, the Catholic Church won't even rebaptize Protestants. Yeah, you know, that's right. when if we were to, if someone were to convert, it's the old thing. You know, it's at some point, it's not your effort and your your sense of meaningfulness of it that drives it. If there's anything that should be about the grace you don't deserve, it's it's the sense that you don't try to make the sacrament something that only tickles your spiritual funny bone. Not that it shouldn't be heartfelt and things. But yeah, it's, it's a challenge. And I know a lot of folks that they wrestle with that, so I'm not judgmental. But from my end, just historically, theologically, I'm going, 
you know, look, one baptism for the remission of sins. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I'm pretty traditional it. myself on that. Yeah, I'm with yeah. you. Uh, but but it just shows the variety of practice and, and theologies out there in terms of what is communion and what is baptism and, and approaches yeah. and how that works out in people's lives and, and continues to work out as people step forward and get involved in the life of the church. I know I saw yeah. one sort of non-denominational church, they were doing baptisms and it was almost like a big portable bathtub. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and the pastor's not in the water, which solves that dilemma of if you do full immersion, you've got to change, get into waders, get up there and get back out. So <laughs> you realize <laughs> that the fly fishing. Yeah. Uh, and, and another amusing anecdote, a, a trick you can do to a pastor that puts on the waiters to do the baptismal or baptism is to put some like Doritos in there. And so he slides <laughs> some things on and crunch, crunch, crunch. <laughs> crunch. I don't know if this is more tragic side, but there are stories of, you know, the problem with a mic is it's, it's a live wire. You don't oh, touch gosh. it when you're wet. There are cases of people who have killed themselves by accident. They reach up to adjust the mic when they're standing in the water. You just made yourself a live circuit. I had never and heard of that. It happened uh, outside Wheaton College. There was a church there. Wow. Guy was going to baptize someone he'd led to Christ, and he reached up, and it took him. Yeah, because it's it's a lot of energy coming through it. So it's Just not, him or both of them? I think just him. I think the other person might have been hurt. I don't know off the top of my head, actually, but I know he passed away. And, Gosh. you know, so you get these... That's one of the things. Any of our listeners, be careful around water and microphones. Now, if you had a lavalier mic with batteries, you'd probably be okay, wouldn't you? No, that yeah, that would just kill the battery. Yeah, it, it, but if it's yeah. but Unless if it's a corded were, microphone, yeah, correct. Yeah, because you got it's it's forty eight volts coming through it. It's it's a lot. And that's that's how Thomas Merton died with the hair dryer or something, right? In the bathtub. Really? Yeah, he was at a conference I'd, meeting with Buddhists in Asia, and he. They took a break and he went no to take idea. a bath. Yeah, and as the hairdryer something fell in the back when the that's that's why our outlets have the that's what they tell us. That's what they tell what us. Happened to Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton. They did not like the seven mountains. They took him out. <laughs> <laughs> that or he and Elvis are somewhere, you know, riding. <laughs> Actually, that would be a great movie, wouldn't it? Merton and Elvis. Merton and Elvis. They never died, and they're on a road trip through America. Let's make it. Oh, <laughs> shut up! <laughs> I'm writing. <laughs> Yeah, Elvis keeps <laughs> distracting him. Uh-huh. Stop it. It would be a great story if Thomas Burton would like interpersonally like a big jerk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, shut up, Elvis. I hate you. I'm writing about peace. <laughs> <laughs> and loving your neighbor. It's called the yeah. eight-story mountain. And Elvis is like, every book he writes has 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 like a number of stories on a mountain. Yeah. It's like the five-story mountain. Did you steal that from Dante? <laughs> shut up. I hate you. I wish I'd never run away. <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. It's terrible. We'll get on that. We'll get on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. How can our listeners from various countries find us? couple things. They can go to our website, theologycast.com. You can find all of the podcast episodes, but more importantly, you can find all the things about us, our blogs, uh, links to our blogs, as I should say, Twitter, all types of things, mm-hmm. Facebook. They can go to Facebook, like the page. Yeah, Facebook.com slash theologycast. Yep. And on Twitter as well. Yep, Twitter is TheologyCast. And by all means, shoot us uh, questions, ideas, topics you want to hear discussed. Probably the biggest thing is to go on iTunes and rate and review us. That metric actually works for us. Yeah, that really helps us. Helps yeah, it makes people find, find us. us and it, it grows the audience. So we really appreciate it. Good night, Denmark. We, we love you. Bye.